This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. Hackers and those whose systems they hack are humans, um, until the robot uprising anyway. And as such, their behavior can be observed, analyzed, and at times predicted. Our guest today is doing research in this area, as well as others in the cybersecurity field. Hello there. My name is David Maimon, and I'm a professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice in the University of Maryland. And what is your problem with today's method or system of dealing with uh, cybersecurity threats? I think that the major problem I have with it is the fact that uh, those companies, um, as well as uh, computer science and, and cybersecurity experts, do not truly collect evidence with respect to um, the effectiveness of some of the tools that they uh, develop. They don't really take into consideration the human factor and how the human factor you know, use this technology and behave over, over the network. And because of that, many of the tools, many of the policies that we have today are not necessarily effective in reducing the probability of individuals and organizations to experience cybercrime. You're saying not necessarily. Is there no data? Yeah, that's that's the major problem we have in the uh, in our field in, in cybersecurity, cybercrime. Um, yeah, I mean we have data, but the data is not really good. You know, there's really no one portal that collect data in an organized manner about cyber attacks, about online fraud. There are a couple of organizations that um, collect data, uh, but not many people are familiar with those data um, and, and those those organizations. So you know, if you become, for instance, a victim of uh, online fraud in the United States. You actually can go and complain to, um, uh, about, the, about your victimization. Um, to whom? To the Internet Crime Complaint Center. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the first time that you've heard about this uh, organization. Unfortunately, this is the, um, not too many people in the United States are familiar with that organization either. So the data that the IC3 provides with respect to different types of online fraud is, is questionable as well. I mean, yeah, people definitely report their online victimization, usually, you know, fraud, online fraud uh, um, uh, events, but, you know, not too many people are, are, are reporting their victimization. So with respect to data, you have companies collecting data, uh, you have organizations like IC3 collecting data, but I'm, I have, have many questions and doubts uh, with respect to the data sets that they collect and present. So what are those questions? Well, if you think about uh, the companies and the information that, that uh, the security companies and the information that they present to us, I mean, those companies obviously have an interest in exaggerating the uh, cybercrime events that they report. The risks. The risks, of course. They want to sell. At the end, and at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, uh, making business. Um, as I mentioned earlier, governmental agencies that report cybercrime, uh, it, it really depends on the approach they take. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, with respect to IC3, IC3, the Internet Crime Complaint Center, they receive complaints from the public. Problem is that, uh, you know, the public is not familiar in the United States of this organization. So we don't see too, too many uh, victims report their victimization to um, this organization. Do you expect more data to be collected uh, now in Europe with uh, GDPR? Yeah, data probably will be uh, more likely to collect it in, 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 in Europe. You have people using surveys to collect data and, and ask people for their online victimization as well. 
problem there is that uh, sometimes you're a victim of cybercrime and you don't truly really know that you're a victim of cybercrime. Uh, like if your lie. credit card's stolen, you don't know right. what way it was stolen. That you don't know. Um, sometimes you will not report because you're embarrassed. So, so there's, there's, there are a lot of questions with respect to reporting your victimization for cybercrime. So again, we don't have really good data that I can count on. Uh, and tell you, you know, the trends in, is going up, is going down, uh, these tools are effective or not. We don't even have good metrics that will allow you to sort of measure uh, all those issues. So, you know, data-wise, uh, reporting trends in cybercrime, I think it's problematic. And what does this lead to? Um, it leads to a discipline that uh, definitely needs to address this issue, uh, develop those metrics trying to find ways to collect evidence uh, with respect to how we're doing uh, as a society, with respect to the volume of cybercrime, as well as how effective are the tools and policies we imply on our system, in our organization, on our phones, in reducing our risk to become a victim of cybercrime. And having insufficient data means that we're protecting ourselves wrong? So again, it's not having insufficient data. We talked um, about big data. You know, there's, there's this huge discussion about big data. Everybody's collecting data nowadays. But, you know, the question is what you can really take from these data sets, right? I mean, um, what are some of the questions you can answer? So data sets are available, you know, for everybody to use. The problem with those data sets is that they're context, in, uh, um, you know, they're not really embedded within a context. So it's really difficult to understand what the data essentially tells you and you know the way the data is collected is also questionable so so it's 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 not necessarily not having data uh, we have data it's not having the right data uh, and the data that will allow you to answer those uh, questions that I, I uh, referred to uh, earlier and what do you as a researcher do to uh, collect that uh, relevant data we are trying to address this issue collecting our own data sets and running experiments. We trying to bring in an approach, um, trying to bring into to our field, the cybersecurity field, an approach that uh, we call, and it's not only me, it's you know, a bunch of scholars, um, an evidence-based cybersecurity approach. At the end of the day, what we're trying to do is we're trying to collect evidence that will tell us as a field what works and what doesn't. And in order for us to really answer those questions, we need to collect the right data sets. Most oftentimes, those data sets will include running experiments, and, and that's what we try to do. So tell me about your experiments. So, so the experiments uh, we run varies considerably. Um, we have experiments where we are uh, trying to understand how hackers behave on an attack computer system and whether we can nudge the hackers, push the hackers to uh, behave in a predictable way way isn't predictable way the way that hackers uh, behave naturally i mean we all behave in a predictable way i mean uh, in, in in certain circumstances we all behave i mean most of us will behave uh, similarly right i mean um, the assumption we have is that that will be true also for hackers for for human hackers who attack uh, systems but in order for us to be able to talk about that um, we have to collect data that will show it uh, without data, you know, it's, it's problematic to talk about this. So we run experiments where we are trying to identify those predictable behaviors, those, those behaviors that will allow us to detect the presence of hacker on the system um, more rapidly, as well as mitigate the consequence of an attack to a system. 
this is so so you know for, for uh, those projects what we do is we deploy um, what we call uh, what the, the field is is uh, familiar with as um, high interaction honeypots and in, in that specific experiment in those specific experiments what we did was uh, we deployed those honeypots on the internet infrastructure um, academic institutions um, in Israel and in the United States and China. Like on servers and routers. Exactly what we did, servers and routers. And we simply uh, try to figure out uh, how hackers behave. What are some of the uh, first things that hackers do on the system? Uh, simply trying to track the cyber keel chain, as well as trying to figure out whether different computing configurations will uh, influence their behaviors uh, in a consistent manner. So this is you know, one type of experiments, one type of, type of data that we collect. We're also very much interested in uh, online fraud and we collect data. We're trying to collect data directly from the bad guys. Well, Do we, they cooperate? Well, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with 419 Eaters. Uh, 419 Eaters is, is a really cool website that presents the conversation of, I don't have any better way to put it, uh, bored people fraudsters who sent them the a Nigerian scam and they simply follow up with it. So, you know, you got an email from a fraudster saying you just won a million dollars. So the guys from 419 Eaters will do, uh, is, you know, they will respond and say, okay, what do I need to do in order to get the million dollars? Uh, and the fraudsters will respond. And then what the 419 Eaters are trying to do is they're trying to waste the bad guy's time as well as make fun of them because at the end of the conversation, um, they, they, they email the web. They post it to the, to the web as, along with a picture that they ask uh, the fraudster to send. Uh, one of the things that these guys ask the fraudsters to do is to prove that they're real human and they're not scammers. And in, in some of the um, conversations that they had with the fraudsters, they asked them to pose with a fish on their head and you know a piece of paper, uh, with, with different curse words on it. Um, and, and these guys send those pictures. And if you go to 419 Eaters, you, you will find that based on their interaction, we decided to put together a project where we um, uh, interact, with, you know, interact with the fraudsters and try to figure out whether the stories they sell to victims are consistent or not. So what we did was we deployed advertisements over Craigslist. We advertised different types of products and um, we inflated the price of those products a little bit uh, and simply sat and waited for people to contact us. Um, we, the assumption was that uh, normative people will not really contact us because, the end of the the price. Day, because of the price. And you know, at the end of the day, you won't contact me for iPhone 2 uh, that we advertised for, I don't know, $200 when you can get it for like $20. The fraudsters will because they have those software that send you um, automatic sort of requests. Uh, once we got those requests, uh, we responded. And after we responded the first time, uh, we started talking to a human. And what was interesting to us in this project was to try and identify the deception cues that these guys sent to us and whether those cues are consistent or not throughout the progression of the uh, online event. Your thinking was, if we know how they, they behave, we can teach it to a computer. That's right. If you think about the, the, the spam filters we have nowadays, we know that they are effective only, again, to an extent. 
uh, at the end of the day, every now and then, uh, you will get a, a, a spam email in your inbox. Spam filters are also very, uh, very much, I mean, again, I don't know how precisely effective they are in preventing uh, emails from getting into your inbox uh, and, and, and preventing phishing attempts. They're not very effective in preventing spear phishing attempts. Spear phishing is when a specific person is targeted. That's right. Usually so within an organization that the hackers want to infiltrate. That's right. I mean, it, it can happen uh, in a specific organization. Well, it can happen if, you know, you, you're uh, trying to look for somebody to marry, right? Uh, and uh, you're in online dating. So what the fraudsters will do is that they will collect a lot of information about you. They will hit on you on the internet. Uh, they will try to build relationship with you and then they will, they will con you. You know, the, nowadays with social media platforms and the fact that we're all on Facebook and Twitter, I mean, it's the, the information is there. So if they want to target specific individuals, um, they will collect as much information as they can about where you work, your friends, um, and then they will post to be one of your friends. The spam filter will not prevent the, 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 the attempt from happening. So what we are trying to do is, you know, we're trying, again, to go uh, beyond the prevention points, talking about mitigation, and identify cues during the transaction, during the transaction between the victim and offender, that will tell you, the potential victim, that you're talking to a fraudster. And uh, what cues have you uh, picked up so far? So the major cue that we were able to identify is urgency. These guys take the urgency strategy quite often. Uh, they uh, will not behave differently than car sales agent. Uh, they will try to make you uh, close the deal. Close the deal right away. And that, that's the same way the uh, fraudsters uh, behave. They want to talk to you over the phone. This is a lot about car dealers. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, a salesperson in general. I mean, this is, I mean, they, essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to push you to make a decision right away. In a sense, you're analyzing their behavior and you realize that they're rational actors who are trying to sell you something. This thing is a con, but right. they're still trying to sell it to you in traditional ways. That's right. I mean, in, in the context of our experiments and the experiment I just uh, started talking about, we, we they contacted us with a request for us to send the item. They didn't want to pay for the item. Um, one of the reasons why we know that these are fraudsters is that they told us they paid the money to our pay, PayPal account, but we didn't have any PayPal account. Uh, and they also sent a fake PayPal notification. So these are fraudsters for sure. Um, during the complete communication we had with them over email, we looked at the urgency cues that they embedded uh, in the emails. Um, they were definitely um, signs of uh, both verbal urgency cues using words like ASAP, please send me the, the device ASAP, soon, fast, and so on, um, as well as nonverbal cues, like bombarding us with emails, right? I mean, this is a very common approach among fraudsters, uh, bombarding you with requests, uh, hoping that you will uh, reply. It was consistent throughout the, the, the whole progression of the criminal events. So it's not like we're looking at the first email, identifying the words and say, yeah, these guys are using urgency cues in order to lure us to send the item. You know, we had sometimes five, six or seven email exchange with these guys. And you see how strategic they are with respect to embedding those urgency cues in the email. When you look at emails we got from people whom we don't think are fraudsters, th th there's, there's no consistency there with respect to the embeddedness of, of urgency cues there, uh, which is really interesting to me. 
what uh, research did you do regarding cellular phones? So this is another uh, very interesting um, study that we're running right now in, in Maryland. We developed this really cool application that allows us to collect what you're doing with your information with respect to what you're doing with your smartphone. And that includes, uh, of course, your application use, which applications you're using. Um, it allows us to collect information with respect to the time of day you wake up in the morning. Connecting, collecting information from your Bluetooth. We also know what kind of car you're driving. Um, our application allows us to know where you are, of course, uh, but also what you're doing while using the device, uh, whether you're walking, uh, driving, uh, running, and what are some of the activities that you're engaging with, with, with the smartphone while, while, while uh, doing all those activities. The, the interesting thing in this project was that we we're trying to figure out the environments as well as time of days in which people are more susceptible to become the victim of cybercrime. So when are you going to be more likely to fall as a victim of cybercrime? After um, lunch. After lunch, uh, during <laughs> evening. This is my guess. As well, we're trying to figure out that. We're trying to figure out the, the best vector of attack. So how can attackers, you know, which, which of the application will be most useful for the hackers to use in order to uh, lure you uh, to give up your information and, and access to your phone, actually. And the location is also something that we are looking at. If, if we send you a smishing text or we're trying to sort of, um, you know, get access to your phone, where are you going to be more susceptible to become the victim of crime? At home or while taking the bus uh, to work? So this is one of the things that we're trying to do. We're also trying to figure out how, you're gonna, how, how smartphone users respond to um, security nudges that we send them where and when you're going to be more likely to um, apply security on your devices, uh, download the most recent version of the applications you use. Um, this is a really interesting study because we run it on the wild. Um, we have, right now, we have around 50 people who downloaded the application. They don't know they're part of the experiment, they obviously. They do know. We, uh, I mean, we have to tell them, right, that, uh, that uh, they participate in an experiment but they allow us access to their devices. We and you're not giving details. We're not giving details. And at the end of the day, I, we, we're not really looking at the content of what they're doing. So I know that you're texting, for instance, somebody. I don't know who you're texting to, and I don't really care. Uh, I just care about the time and where you send the text from. I know that you're on the web using your browser, but I don't know really which websites you went to. All, I, all I'm interested in is, is the patterns, right? Um, so right now we have 50 participants in this experiment and we monitor their devices for three months. We have some preliminary findings from this uh, uh, really interesting experiment, but you know, unfortunately I can't really disclose uh, those findings at this point. Well, hopefully I have um, software on your phone that I can uh, <laughs> take the data from. Right. What other experiments are you uh, running now? One of the interesting experiments that we finished in the United States and we're going to run and we're actually running uh, in Israel is focused with internet users' behaviors over public Wi-Fi. Public Wi-Fi is very big right now and people unfortunately log into every public Wi-Fi and it makes themselves sort of open to, to different types of attacks. Maybe, you know, we should uh, mention to the listeners that they shouldn't really engage in, in specific behaviors while using public Wi-Fi, like uh, going to their bank accounts, uh, people need to be vigilant with respect to who's standing behind them because uh, shoulder surfing is really big right now. And, you know, uh, I think that using security tools like remote VPN while using public Wi-Fi uh, is very important because that way it will make 
uh, hackers and you know the bad guys operation against you uh, you know more difficult but having said that we know that uh, most people do not really uh, engage in those uh, self-protective behaviors and so what we did in Maryland was we went to uh, different public Wi-Fi locations try to figure out what people are doing over public Wi-Fi networks and people doing everything over public Wi-Fi networks of course they listen to music they watch Netflix, uh, but they also go into their bank accounts. They also go, of course, to social media platforms like Twitter and, and Facebook. You know, they use it sometimes in a way that um, is, is problematic, like going to porn websites, um, you know, from a public wife, I think, you know, uh, this is something you shouldn't really do. So in, in one of our experiments in the context of public Wi-Fi, we try to figure out whether people will log into any type of public Wi-Fi that they see. And we find that they do, unfortunately. Not too many people engage to those open public Wi-Fi, but some people do use those public Wi-Fi once they, once they see them, even when there's, a, there's another public Wi-Fi available for them, which is legitimate. So what, you give them conspicuous names? I, you know, in, in those specific uh, experiments, what we did was we uh, named the network uh, David Private. So you shouldn't be on my network. And one of the interesting things that we find is that when folks use my network, they don't really go to their banking account. They don't really go to uh, their email accounts. They still go to Facebook accounts, but other than that, they're not really revealing uh, too much information. They're, they're more cautious, sort of speaking. And, and this is really important, I think, because it, it shows you that you can definitely nudge people to be more secure uh, or, they, or apply more secure behavior over the internet. We also take into consideration in those experiments the physical environment. You know, if we talk about the research protocol of those experiments, what we do is we send the students with our networks and a program that the software that is called Wireshark that allows you to see what other people are doing with the network that you're connected to. And at the same time, my students collect all the information from the environment. How many males, how many females are sitting in the locations? How do they sit next to each other? Is it right next to each other or in front of each other? How many computer devices do they see? How many employees uh, are in the locations? We take into consideration the traffic in the location. How many people come in, come out? We take all those information and we try to correlate that with what happened on the online environment. And, and we have some really interesting results there. One of the interesting results that we, we reported was that uh, we find that once there's a lot of employees, the, the, the percentage of employees in the location is, is, is relatively high, people are less likely to go to suspicious networks like the networks that we put together. Um, and they're more likely to conceal their screen when using the public Wi-Fi. So more employees increase the probability of people uh, applying self-protective behaviors in cyberspace. Again, we're still analyzing data from all the uh, information that we collected from those um, environments. But at the end of the day, we believe that what's happening in the physical world uh, will definitely matter with respect to what people are doing and willing to do uh, in cyberspace as well. Are you going to later on talk to them and ask them why they made those decisions or do you think they're subconscious? Um, I think, you know, it's important to talk to those individuals and this is something that we might be able to do here in Israel. Here in Israel, we have different constraints than we had than those we had in, in Maryland. Um, yeah, here in Israel, we're not allowed to uh, monitor networks uh, the way we are in Maryland. Before we monitor networks in public Wi-Fi networks in, um, in Maryland, 
we first had to get uh, an approval from the ethicum, ethics committee in, in the university, but that wasn't really enough for us. We went and talked to the legal team in the university just to make sure that we're not getting into trouble when doing this. And the legal team in Maryland suggested that uh, there's really no law in Maryland that prevents us from sniffing. Uh, the only caveat was that if, if, if you go to a location and once you log into their public Wi-Fi, you get a banner saying you're not allowed to sniff, then you know you have to leave the premise right away. But nobody tells you that you're not allowed to sniff, then you're game and you turn on your computer, you know, work on uh, Wireshark and start downloading traffic to your computer. Obviously, our intentions were not malicious, but unfortunately, some people will have malicious intentions. Here in Israel, we're not allowed to do that. Um, which, which is really interesting um, and, and in a way very good. The question is what happens once you put together your own network, uh, whether you are allowed to sniff that network or not. And in Maryland, of course, you can do that. Here, even though we um, plan to bring our own networks to locations, it looks like we, we, we still are not allowed to monitor the network. And that, that is, I think, problematic because at the end of the day, um, as an IT manager, you want to make sure that the network is healthy and that no one is using your network for committing crime, right? And if you're not monitoring this uh, network... So you're not allowed to monitor, but you're allowed to filter. Like, you can prevent people from going to specific sites. If I'm not monitoring, then, you know, you, you can definitely filter. You can definitely filter. But at the end of the day, it's not only about filtering. Um, if I'm engaging in a hack, right, then you won't be able to filter that event, right, at the end of the day, right? Um, so yeah, maybe you, uh, you'll be able to block my access to BitTorrent websites, but if I'm if I want to use your network to start hacking people, I'll be able to do that quite easily. So so again, in Israel, we're not allowed to launch this experiment, uh, but we have other experiment that I can't really reveal at this point because you know uh, we need to collect data in a reliable way. Uh, other experiments that you're uh, into or are finished already, and you can't reveal. So we have this really cool. Um, experiment that we're running right now. I mean, maybe I'll start with talking about the data collection. There is this website that's called Zone Age. Uh, Zone Age is a, is, a, is a website that allows hackers that deface websites to report their acts. What's cool about this website is not only the fact that you can see the, the actual defacement, but you can see also the hacker username. So you know in a way uh, which hacker engage in which kind of a behavior. Now, you don't really know the, the true name, right? It's just a username. But hackers are trying to gain reputation among their peers, so they tend to use the same username uh, when reporting uh, those web defacements. What we're doing um, in, in a paper that was published already, um, we try to figure out uh, those hackers' presence on social media platforms. Um, so we took all those hackers' names and we went to... Uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and we try to find evidence for their presence on those social media platforms. The idea, that is the idea that uh, essentially ran our experiment, which I can talk a little bit. We don't have funding from it, but you know, I can still uh, talk about it. The idea is to try and figure out whether we can identify cues for an attack before it happens. Um, so if I, if, if I go, if I monitor your Facebook page, um, can, I, can I get some cues for the fact that you're gonna attack a specific website, when and where? Uh, simply by monitoring it. We, in this paper that we published already, we find that, that there's definitely correlation between hacker use of Facebook and Twitter and the volume of attacks that they generate. 
which is really interesting. So, you know, if you're on different social media platforms, you're generating more attacks and more websites. We, we show that um, it works for hackers from all over the world. Um, and we show that this pattern is really predictive for attacks that happen during weekdays and not during weekends. The next step is for us to uh, really start monitoring uh, Facebook, Twitter, um, and, and those YouTube accounts by friending those hackers and, and try to figure out whether we can intervene, send them a message in order to reduce their probability to generate attacks. And this is something that we're working on right now. Um, I can't really reveal the findings, but you know we are still monitoring both Zone Age and um, uh, you know the different social media platforms that we uh, play with uh, in order to try and figure out whether we can reduce the volume of attacks that these guys are generating. So this is like, we found you, stop doing that, um, or we'll look for you in, in real life? Yeah, you said that. Um, it's something very similar to what you just uh, alluded to. Now, you know, when we in, in injected this intervention, uh, we're trying to figure out whether it has any effect on, these, uh, on the volume of attack that these guys generate. You do know that different messages or microcopy uh, has an effect on hackers. That's right. Uh, we, we know that you can definitely communicate with hackers. Uh, we know that warnings work with hackers. While they're in your system. We know that warnings are effective in nudging people uh, to behave in a predictable way. We know, for instance, from our honeypots experiments in, in, in the United States, that um, once you send a hacker a warning during the progression of a criminal event, you shortens the time that uh, the hacker uh, remain on your system. We also know that if you are less skilled of a hacker, the hacker the, the, the warning will reduce your probability to engage with the system. And this is really interesting to me. I mean, it reduces your probability to roam the system, to download stuff to the system, not really to open a back door, uh, but still roaming around uh, is, is, is key, trying to figure out what's happening on the system and downloading stuff to the system. Uh, we, we know that the warning really works there. So we're trying in a way to replicate it and see whether we can prevent an event from happening. What does it tell you about hackers besides the fact that they're human? They're, they're rational creatures uh, like, like the rest of us. And um, they make decisions. The decisions they make and the decision-making process is subject to biases. Um, and what we are trying to figure out is those biases and how we can use those biases, leverage them in order to nudge the hackers to behave in a predictable way in order to detect them on the system and mitigate them, um, uh, you know, mitigate the attack. Um, at the end of the day, these guys are human like us. Uh, they behave in a similar way that uh, we behave in, in the offline environment. Um, so that, that essentially these are... Human beings, when you actually have a human being on the system, of course, you have botnets that generate a lot of attacks. We identify those botnets um, and we're trying to sort of differentiate the findings we generate for botnets uh, than, 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 uh, to the findings we have for, for uh, hackers, like real hackers, the human hackers. Um, but at the end of the day, these, these guys are human. And like with any human, you can nudge him or her to behave in a predictable way. In the um, general view of your researches, what have you learned about people and what have you learned about um, security breaches? Um, in, in, this is a, actually a really good question. Um, in, in the context of cybersecurity, um, we, um, you know, from, and from my research, 
we find that uh, oftentimes people don't know what they're doing um, on the system. So, Which makes sense because this is how you hack. You go in the system, you find a, a breach, you go through, and then what do I have to do here? Do I know a, a known breach? Do I find a new one? Do I just try and, and uh, mess around and see what happens? That's right. I mean, so, so again, I mean, it's, but when I think about the human player, uh, there are three major players that you know sort of need to think about. You have the hackers, the offenders, the bad guys. And in the context of these guys, I think that you can talk about skill levels. Uh, so you have, you know, the more skilled hackers that know what they're doing, that write malicious software, that write ransomware, and then they spread it. And, you know, they're very sophisticated. But then you have the script it is. They just run software and you know they don't really know what they're doing they, these are the majority of the hackers that we again we don't have official statistics on that but based on how we um you know the attacks we see you know that uh the majority of hackers nowadays are are you know low-level script kiddos then you have the um targets right people like you and i uh who use computers just you know for fun for work um those individuals who use public Wi-Fi, you know, irresponsibly going to banking websites and, you know, doing other things over those networks without really protecting their privacy. Uh, th those people, majority of those users, um, again, do not really know what they're doing. Um, and, and it's a shame because at the end of the day, the way I view it, we gave technology to individuals without really uh, teaching them how it works and how to protect themselves. Um, over the network. Um, so I, I think that in, in the context of our research um, on those individuals, focus on those individuals, we really need to find a way to educate people with respect to the safe ways to deal with the internet, to deal with technology. Um, and then you have the IT managers, and the IT managers are very sophisticated. The problem with the IT managers, in my opinion, is the fact that they draw heavily on their personal experience um, and they do not really take into consideration um, hardcore empirical evidence um, that they need to with respect to the effectiveness of the different approaches, different policies, different tools they use. Um, so the IT managers, yes, are very sophisticated in terms of understanding, dissecting attacks and what have you, but with respect to preventing, mitigating, and remediation, you know, uh, I think that more could be done there. And in your experience, have you ever stumbled upon uh, state actors or um, organized crime, criminal groups of hackers um, that you could uh, identify by their behavior or the um, scope of their hacking? Um, with respect to state hackers, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say that uh, we've experienced these guys. Um, I mean, I can give you one anecdote with respect to uh, complaints we got from a state agency in the United States where our computers, uh, the computers that we deploy for hackers to attack, were used to attack their computers. So, you know, yeah, so, so <laughs> you became a botnet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which was really interesting. This is, this is how much freedom we allowed, um, you know, hackers uh, that use our system to have. Um, with respect to organized crime groups, there's a project that, you know, I'm, in, I'm under NDA, so I can't really talk a whole lot about. Uh, there's a project uh, that focuses on online fraud again, where we see 
evidence for organized crime groups. And it's it's really interesting. I mean, when you think about cybercrime in general and online fraud in particular, you can definitely envision an ecosystem um, in which different actors operate, right? So you have you have the bad guys, you have the offenders, then you have the victims, of course, you have the IT managers that we talked a lot about, but then you have the enablers as well, those individuals who allow the bad guys to run their operations. So, so these guys, for instance, will distribute malware for you. You wrote malware, you need people to distribute it, right? So you go on the darknet and um, you, know, you look for people to work with you and, and, and then they start doing this. Um, we see evidence in this specific project um, for organized crime groups doing this, uh, sending fraud, different, engaging different fraud schemes um, in the United States. Um, it's mind-boggling uh, to see how these guys are working, how they communicate with each other, how do they get their tool, how they tailor new types of frauds. And we, I mean, the, the, the type of new frauds we see on a monthly basis is just staggering. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. Um, they say they take the same theme, but they just play it differently, um, trying to victimize different audiences, right? Uh, audiences that sometimes will not necessarily report their victimization, never, right? Like, for instance, um, escort girls, right? I mean, there's a scam that is targeted specifically to escort girls that are not allowed to uh, advertise their services uh, in the United States. The fraudsters take advantage on that and they tailor this really cool scam um, that cool and of course, you know, nobody should, should uh, engage in it. Uh, they try to defraud these, these girls from, from their money. Um, so you see how these guys, you know, interact, sort of the bad guys. You see the organization, you see the, the mules, you see where they route the money to, who they get the money, how they send the money to different, um, you know, actors. Um, so, so the organized crime groups we definitely see in the context of our fraud research, in the context of our um, cyber attacks research, I, I don't see too much of it. I mean, at the end of the day, that line of research is focused on, uh, on an, an attack. So I don't really care about the organizational structure there. Professor David Marmon, thank you very much. Thank you. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.